Good morning. Happy Thanksgiving weekend to you. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I was a little dismayed when Jeff uh, said that Christmas was 28 days away. A few of you clapped and he was shocked by that. It's because Jeff does not share the Heinz tradition of going to Mall of America on Good Friday. But there are a few good sales. We did go to the Pepper Palace. Everybody needs some hot sauce. And there was a Green Bay Packer store. And that summarizes all of my purchases. <laughs> That's all I got. Uh, let's uh, turn to Luke chapter 13. Luke 13, 22 to 30. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, uh, we thank you for the Thanksgiving season. So many reasons to be filled with thanksgiving. Thank you for Advent that reminds us of the coming of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray that we would not rush through either the Thanksgiving season or Advent leading up to Christmas Day. That we would make time in our hearts and our lives to worship you. To focus on your goodness. And you are good. Be with us today as we look at your word. Take your inspired and errant word and apply it to our hearts. Challenge us and encourage us. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. According to one scholar that I was reading, there are 1,000 plus religious belief systems in the United States. I'm not just talking about various denominations of a certain type of faith system, but a thousand plus different belief systems. The majority of the belief systems are rather inclusive. That is, believe in a God, believe in a faith, believe in good works, believe in something, and you will have afterlife in nirvana or heaven or paradise or some version of it. In contrast to that, Christianity is both exclusive and inclusive. It's neither one nor the other, not totally. It's inclusive because we read, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's an inclusive offer of the gospel to all who would believe in Jesus Christ as a sole payment of our sin, his death paying our sin, his resurrection offering eternal life. It's exclusive because Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's a clear exclusion in the gospel. There's one way to receive eternal life. Now most of us live in a world of both exclusion and inclusion. 
I grew up in a family with both the exclusive nature of the gospel, but very much the inclusive nature of all people. That was something that was bred in me from my parents, probably from their parents. For instance, my mother grew up in Brazil and then Puerto Rico. That was the first 18 years of her life. Then she went to the University of Pennsylvania and then Tufts University, then got married and moved to Spain where both of my sisters were born. My earliest memories are not of Spain but of the Philippines where my backyard was a large jungle and the family pet was a spider monkey named Charlie. That was how I was raised as a young child. My father worked almost predominantly with African Americans when he learned here in the United States, and we regularly got together with them. And from a very young age, I would walk away and I would not remember if somebody had light skin, brown skin, dark skin. Just did not remember. It did not register on me. I remember as a child, many, many Saturdays, my parents going down to the rescue mission, gathering children of all ethnicities, bringing them out to a park for a picnic and to play on our family boat with us. That's the way our childhood was. Betty Ann and I were very fortunate to have foster children who then became adoptive children, and they have better times than we do. The Bible teaches an inclusion that is quite real. There's the exclusive nature of the gospel, salvation in Christ alone, but there is an inclusive nature of the gospel that is for all people of every tongue, every ethnicity. Let me read to us out of Revelation 5, verse 9. It says this, And they sang a new song, this is singing to the Lamb, Jesus, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you are slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's the inclusive nature of the gospel. In fact, in Matthew 24, verse 14, it tells us that Jesus will not return for the parousia, the coming of Christ, until there are people from every ethnos, that's a word that probably means people group, every ethnos, in the entire world, there will be people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation that will bow down to Jesus. And the question we might ask is this, how many ethnos groups are here in the world today? And you need to know that nobody knows the answer. There's at least 10,900. We know that there are almost upwards of 7,000 languages but some languages are in multiple locales. So just by language alone, separated by geography, we have almost 11,000 people groups. Some would say we have 13,000 because they want to add the dialects. Others would say 16,500 because they want to add caste and culture. And others would say, no, there's 24,000 because we're also 
divided by economic and educational strata. So somewhere between 10,900 and 24,000 ethnos. And Matthew 24, 14 tells us that Jesus will not return until people from every tribe and tongue, people and nation, every ethnos knows him as Savior. That's the inclusive nature of the gospel. That means that when we get to heaven, we're going to see people that are very poor and poor and middle class and upper middle class and rich. They'll all be there, some from each group. That means that we'll have individuals who are professors and PhDs and master's degrees and college education and high school diplomas and somewhat literate and barely literate and illiterate, they'll all have representation in heaven. There'll be people with dark-skinned, light-skinned. I've said to my kids, as long as they can remember, I don't care the color of the skin of the individual you marry. I care that they know Jesus, but they can be dark-skinned, light-skinned, purple-skinned. That's the way I put it every single time. And I believe in heaven, we're going to have representation of every kind of hue of color of skin. There'll be Democrats, there'll be Republicans, there'll be independents and libertarians, there'll be socialists, there'll be communists. All of these different groups will be represented in the inclusive nature of the gospel. There'll be tall people and medium people, and the mansions are going to be built for short people, and all of those are going to be included in heaven because there's an inclusive nature of the gospel, but also an exclusive nature. It comes through Christ. Let me pick up on our text. I want to read from Luke 13. We'll pick up in verse 22 and read to verse 30. He, Jesus, <coughs> went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive, that's the word agonizomai, from which we derive the word agonize, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets and the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first and some who are first will actually be last. This is rather typical of Jesus, is it not? You know that in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is constantly aiming towards Jerusalem. Jesus can hardly wait to get Jerusalem, though he doesn't want to go through the suffering, though he doesn't want to drink the cup 
of iniquity, of our sin, he can hardly wait to buy redemption for us. And so the text tells us he goes from town to town, village to village, on his way down to Jerusalem. And as he's in one particular town, a man comes up to him, and the man asks, how many will be saved, or will there be many saved at all? Now, all scholars agree that based on the geography of where Jesus is, the man who's asking the question is a Jew. And the specific question he's asking is probably broader than what it sounds like. He's not really saying how many will be saved. What he's really saying is how many Gentiles will be saved. Or will there be Gentiles saved? Is it just Jews that are saved? You see, in this day and age, reflected in John 8 and other places, the average Jew believed that because of their Jewishness, she or he would be saved. But Gentiles, not very likely. We have, for instance, the Mishnah. The Mishnah are the oral traditions, oral in the time of Christ, later redacted or written down in 220 by Rabbi Judah Hanasi, and in Sanhedrin 10.1, we read the following. All Israelites have a share in the world to come. For it is written, thy people also shall be all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever. Now that's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, Jesus is going to burst his bubble by teaching that it's not about ethnicity. It's about knowing Jesus Christ, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Nobody has been saved outside of Christ. Only through Christ is somebody saved. But this individual doesn't understand that. And so he's asking the question, essentially, are any Gentiles actually going to be saved? And Jesus answers by essentially saying that it's a lot less that will be saved than one feels comfortable hearing. I remember this last August. A man named Dr. Robert Jeffers, he's a senior pastor of the First Baptist Church in Dallas. He was taken to task by many media sources because he actually stated that probably more people are spiritually lost than they are spiritually saved. Now, full disclosure, I don't particularly like the way Robert Jeffers ever talks to the media. He's a rather strident individual. But in this particular case, he said exactly what Jesus says. Jesus says, wide is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the path that leads to life. Let me read from Matthew 7, the 13th verse. Enter by the narrow gate. This is the exclusive nature of the gospel. It's only through Jesus Christ. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. As I thought about this, I thought of Dr. Alistair Begg. Some of you know him as a theologian. He was asked to speak in an auditorium at Harvard University. He was going to share the gospel, salvation by faith in Christ alone. In fact, his text was what I just read in Matthew chapter 7. 
the morning in which he was going to speak at Harvard University, he was in a coffee shop and he was getting cold feet. He thought to himself, you know what? The exclusive nature of the gospel is not going to play very well at Harvard University. I wonder if I can think through another text and think through another message. And he was just kind of getting cold feet. And right he should because 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 to 22, 23, tells us that the narrow nature of the gospel sounds as foolishness to the intelligentsia. That's what Paul wrote in AD 54-55. So Alistair Bagg is sitting in the coffee shop, and he's thinking, man, i got to think of another message. Never a good thing to do if you're a pastor. And he noticed one table over, a gal was reading her Bible. She was an Asian woman, and so he struck up a conversation, and he said, uh, are you a Christian? I notice you're reading your Bible. And she responded this way. Yes, I have found the narrow gate. That was his text. He further asked her about her life, and she had grown up in Korea, grown up as a Buddhist, and had rejected the three million gods accepted in Buddhism, and she had come to the narrow gate. And he felt that God was encouraging him to preach his original text, and he preached, and several came to the narrow gate, came to Christ. And so should we preach about the narrow gate, the exclusive nature of the gospel. Notice the language Jesus uses in our text, especially in verse 24. He says this, Strive, agonizomai, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter it and will not be able now, when you read the word strive, agonizomai, from which we derive the word agonize, we might think, well, I've got to agonize in order to get to heaven. I've got to do all the right good things in order to please a holy God. But that's really not what the text is saying. It's saying agonize through the many gates. Study the various gates carefully. Study them against history and archaeology and science. Study them carefully to see which stand and which fall. Agonize through the possibilities to find the narrow gate. And then when you find the narrow gate, continue to agonize on behalf of those who have not yet found the narrow gate, that they also may hear the gospel, that your heart may break, that you may fall to your knees and pray on behalf of those who don't know Jesus, that you may share along with Paul, who writes in 2 Corinthians 5, he says this, he says that we are there for Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That word implore essentially means to agonize. We, we agonize on behalf of you, that you too may come to a saving knowledge. Of Christ. Why such agony? Well, let me again read verses 25 to 27. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and a knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. 
Then you will begin to say, we ate and we drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In other words, the inclusive nature of the gospel, all who call upon the name of the Lord, with the exclusive boundaries of the gospel, you must call upon the name of Jesus, not only all, but only on one name, Jesus, has an expiration date. The day you and I expire is the day in which our opportunity to embrace Christ ends. So the author of Hebrews writes in 927, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that, the judgment. And so we go back to this agonize. We agonize as we look for the one true gate, and then we agonize on behalf of loved ones and coworkers and neighbors that they also might know the one true gate. In addition, the language makes it clear that when we face judgment, some are going to be rather surprised. Let me read verse 26. We ate and drank in your presence. In other words, there are going to be those who say, Lord, Lord, and he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. There are going to be those people who are sitting with us here who do not know Christ. Those people who take communion who do not know Christ. Those people who teach, those people who preach who do not know Christ. Who perhaps are placing their confidence in good works or their confidence in the home that they're growing up in or their confidence in the person they're married to or their confidence in a grown child who knows Jesus but they have not had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The text says there are some who are going to say, we drank in your presence, Jesus. And Jesus will say, depart from me, all you workers of evil, verse 27 and 8. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets of the kingdom of God, but you yourself are cast out. This is a description of hell. I suppose in proper society we wouldn't talk about hell. But the Bible does. The Bible talks about it as a literal place. It talks about it as a place of regret. A place in which individuals would go over and over again in their mind the opportunities they had to embrace the living God and didn't. I think of Dante and his inferno. If you've read Dante's Inferno, you remember that the sign over the Inferno says this. It says, for those who go beyond, end all hope. Let go of all hope. It's a place of hopelessness. Again, I suppose in our society, we don't talk about hell because it's just not polite. But I would counter and say, is it polite if indeed hell exists? And the Bible believes it. If hell exists, is it actually polite not to talk about it? Is it polite not to bring up the eternal destiny of those who do not believe in Jesus Christ? Sometimes we can be so nice, we can be terribly disadvantageous 
to the souls of others. I would say it's impolite not to talk about the destiny of where someone can go if they do not embrace Christ. The topic of hell should drive us to our knees. It should break our hearts. It should cause us to desire to share the gospel with others. Jesus wanted all. He has an inclusivity in the gospel. Let me again read verses 29 and 30. And people will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. God offers salvation to all four corners, north, south, east, and west. As we conclude this morning, I have two final thoughts. The first thought is actually the gospel itself. You remember the question that Jesus was asked, are not many going to be saved or are there only a few that will be saved? And the question was, are there any Gentiles that will be saved? But Jesus flipped the question up and he essentially made it a personal question to the individual who asked. He's making a personal question to we who are reading the text and he wants to know, do we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, that we are saved. You see, there's an exclusive and inclusive nature of the gospel. I think of Romans 10, 9, 10, and 11. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. With the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Then notice this, for the scripture says, everyone... That's very inclusive. Who believes in him, very inclusive, will not be put to shame. I think of 1 Peter chapter 5, the 12th verse. Those who have the Son will be saved. Those who do not have the Son of God will not be saved or will not have life. That's the message of Scripture. And so it behooves each one of us today to examine our hearts to make sure that we indeed have placed our faith in Christ. Remember, some will be eating and drinking in the presence of Jesus, and Jesus will say, depart from me. I did not know you. We can't go into heaven on the drawstrings of another. We need to know Christ personally. The second thing I draw from the text is this. The gospel has given is a full-orbed gospel. It doesn't cut corners. Sometimes when we give the gospel, I fear that we're afraid to talk about sin. We want to talk about the happy part of the gospel, but not the sinful part. But Scripture has both. It talks about our need for the gospel because of our need for sin. I think it's also akin to how we often share Jeremiah 29, verse 11. Some of you love this verse, so do I. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And we pull our little happy verse out of our happy hat, and we cite Jeremiah 29, 11, and we forget the context of the passage, just as we forget the context of the gospel. 
The context of Jeremiah 29.11 is a context of deprivation. It's a context of sin. It's the 29th chapter. Do you know what the 28 chapters that precede Jeremiah 29 are all about? They're about Judah being carried into captivity, the 70-year Babylonian, paid immersion captivity. And after 28 chapters of you guys are idolatrous, you guys are immoral, you guys are unethical, you guys are suffering exactly what you deserve, you're getting your just desserts. Then we get to chapter 29, verse 11, that says that God has a plan for you. And it's a future plan of good, talking perhaps not even temporally, but eternally. That's the context of Jeremiah 29, 11. That's the exact context of the gospel. The exact context of the gospel is this. You and I are sinners. We are vile sinners. And we're not even mild sinners. We have created an affront to a holy God. He demands perfection and we don't provide it. And we have been in alienation, enemies of the cross. But God loves us so much that he provided the means to pay the penalty of our sin, which is death, and the Son willingly went to the cross out of love for us and died for us. The context of the gospel is 28 chapters of my sin or 40 chapters of my sin. And so when we share the gospel, we have to remember the full-orbed gospel. It's an inclusive offer. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's an exclusive gospel. There is no other name but Jesus by which you will be saved. There's a time limit. It is appointed for man to die once and after that the judgment. There's a literal hell. There's a place where those who go beyond, there is no hope. There are no second chances. All of that is part of the full orb nature of the gospel. And that's the gospel that Jesus gave a man who asked a simple question. Will there be many that are saved? Jesus really didn't answer the question in this text. He answered it in Matthew 7. Wide is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the path that leads to redemption. Find the narrow path. It's only in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that out of your love, you would pay the penalty through your son for our sin. And we thank you, Jesus, that you would be willing to pay the penalty. That you would die and rise again on the third day to offer eternal life. And we thank you that if we believe in your Son, Father, that you send your Spirit who indwells us and empowers us to turn from sin and towards righteousness. And Father, may our hearts break for the lost and may we earnestly desire to share salvation, the salvation that comes through Christ, and if there's some here today that do not know Jesus, I pray that by faith they might believe 
and your son for salvation, for eternal life. Father, we thank you for your care and love for us. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.